Uh, all right. I apologize if it's a bad connection. Just shoot me down if it is. But uh, yeah, my name is Motor from Strange Gods Podcast. Uh, I uh, the GM of Strange Gods Podcast. We're playing through uh, the Jason Adventure Path using Pathfinder. Uh, the Sword and Misery Podcast, where we play through uh, the Levy from the Blight setting uh, using uh, Swords and Wizardry. And we also have Strange Murmurings, which we also hear every Thursday. That really wasn't double damage. I apologize. I rolled like two ones. <laughs> um, okay, I guess I'm next. So, uh, yeah, I'm Brian I'm with Lost Relic Industries. Um, the other half of Lost Relic Industries, my wife Liz, is also Lost Relic. Uh, we are creators of Swords and Shaman of Songguard, a fantasy, low fantasy uh, tabletop RPG that's in beta currently. Uh, and that's what we do. Good morning. I am Pex. I'm the Tavern Custodian here at the Tavern Discord, helping with things, all things tavern related. I also work for Frog God Games and do kind of the same thing there. Um, yeah, it's my spiel. I'm Tom Knaus. I'm one of the designers for Frog God Games. I also occasionally uh, am parceled out to Cobalt Press to do some stuff for them, but I primarily write uh, adventures and campaign setting material for Frog God Games. All right, let's look at our topics here. So our options are discuss avoiding and or concealing the railroad adventure design, Sandbox campaigns, best practices in advertising a new product. Does anybody want to start off with one of those? Well, I'm kind of partial to the um, concealing the railroad and the leading into the sandbox discussion, too. That sounds good. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so <laughs> I guess I'm starting. Uh, so I guess one of the things, uh, uh, BB Weird asks, how are we defining a railroad? Um, I guess for me, the railroad is when we have a, a linear path or something that says, okay, uh, the players must follow th these sets of conditions, um, which doesn't really give them a lot of options. And sometimes that's uh, sometimes that's concealed in game design, um, or it's it's very shallowly concealed. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, you know it's not so well concealed. Uh, you know where you see like uh, like in a video game where you might have to run from point A to point B and just clear you know, endlessly respawning mobs uh, or monsters, and you're just trying to get from one into another. So to me, that's really what uh, the railroad is. Um, it's that lack of, of uh, ability to sort of go outside the lines, to explore the sandbox, um, anything like that. I don't know if anybody else has anything to add to that. I think that it does a good job of summarizing what we're kind of talking about. Um... When I got into, into game design about 20 years ago, 
you had those, I guess there were like three rules. Um, don't save the princess. Don't have anything involved with saving the world. And don't try to railroad the characters, meaning that the adventure goes from point A to, as, um, as we said earlier, the adventure goes from point A to point B, and there's no room to deviate from that. So it makes the players tend to feel very confined that if they say, well, okay, I want to go and do this, the GM is kind of at a loss if you're following the adventure strictly because there is no options for this. You have to kind of wing it. Uh, if you can, and if you can't, you're kind of stuck just telling the players, well, no, you don't really want to do that. You want to stick to the script here. And it's really, you know, I, I like to think of, and segueing into the sandbox idea, is I like to think of it as a subplot in a movie. If you watched a movie, and the movie has a general plot, and it has subplots in it, but what if there were no plot? What if it was just a series of vignettes or a series of subplots that never really mesh together so it's really it's really a question of having a plot having the players have a goal in mind but either not confining them so strictly to that goal or having them go so far afield that you're totally lost and, and you have no idea how to bring them back to the adventure Yeah, and yeah. I think that, that's a, a tricky, tricky line to walk because a lot of times, um, you know, when you're designing an adventure as a game master, you have some things in mind, right? And so you think, hey, I've got this great idea. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, you you want to give the players freedom. And it's funny because, you know, as we're talking about it, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about, I don't know why this popped into my head, but uh, one of the uh, most popular uh modules of all time uh was ravenloft right um and i was thinking about ravenloft and it really kind of breaks all of those rules because it's very forced it's very at least in my mind it, it it's actually kind of the opposite it's it's very um you're locked now into this setting um the players can't escape um we're going to hound them and harass them until they confront the boss um which is kind of funny um, because it does kind of go against that, but it was uh, clearly it, it was successful at least in terms of sales um, and popularity. Um, and I'm not really quite sure where I was going with that, but uh, I think yeah, basically as a as a GM, you you tend to fall down that. And I sort of saw that pattern in that module design because you could see where um, they were looking at well, what if the players try to escape? And I feel like that's maybe the wrong path is. Uh, ultimately, is you don't want them to escape it. Um, I try to think of things as like hooks, um, and one of the the big hooks that I had in in um, one of my starting games was just trying to get a, a magical map into the hands of my players and or into the hands of their characters. And I would I started out thinking, okay, well, this is where the map is, and then I realized that the characters had no interest in going there, and so suddenly it became like this. Okay, well. I had to really think on the spot, well, what am I doing? Well, my, my, uh, the players said, well, we want to go down to the arena and see what's going on at the arena. And then we had, uh, you know, there were some gladiatorial fights. Uh, they had no interest in, in, in going to loot something or, uh, look for this map that these people had paid them to find. 
And so uh, the bard goes around and starts picking pockets. And so I just had the bard lift the map out of somebody's pocket. Uh, so on the one hand, yeah, it, it's here's the rail, right? Uh, but it's just there's a hook. Now you can do with it what you want. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but you know that's kind of it's little tricks like that, I guess. I mean, I think it's a very valid point bringing up pre-written adventures. Aren't they all railroads? Tentative question mark. And I think they are to an extent, but I think there's an understanding with that type of railroading where, okay, I mean, we could do this, that, and the other and not play Ravenloft, for instance, or we can play Ravenloft. I mean, everybody knows what they bought a ticket for, kind of. Yeah, to, to me with Ravenloft in particular, is uh, Ravenloft is a... Relatively sandbox if you stay within the within the rails, but if you look at it more like um, an outdoor dungeon crawl. So basically, the 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 aim is to find the exit. You know, um, it's really it's kind of just like throwing somebody into into a dungeon delve and having them to try to figure out how the hell to get out of there. I think that's something that's important too about dungeon design itself. You know, when we're talking about uh, giving. Uh, the player's options too is is dungeon design doesn't have to be linear. Um, I don't uh, typically, uh, you know, when I'm looking at drawing up a dungeon or a layer, I typically don't want to have one path. Um, I like to give the players choices uh, because I think you know there's something to be said about coming to an intersection and then just watching the party try to decide. Okay, wait, do we go this way or that way? Um, there's something to be said about you know, when you present them with an obstacle, uh, particularly if, if there's only one one way uh, to get around that obstacle, um, you've you've actually shut the whole adventure down, right? If the if the characters fail to uh, to do that, if they didn't bring um, the one item that they needed to to uh, get over a ledge, or if they all have to succeed at climbing um, to get over that ledge, um, and you didn't give them any other uh, ways around it. So I think that's also important too, just in the, the pure mechanics of the design. I think one thing too that players enjoy, or at least I feel, or as when I design something is there are multiple outcomes. There's not just one way to do things. Um, and that's something I really try and avoid when I do adventure design is that you come to the big boss and like you were saying, um, you need this specific item to defeat him or her or whatever it is. And I prefer to have it that you can have multiple choices. You may not even have to kill the big boss guy. You may be able to do something that um, has the outcome you desire without that. For instance, you negotiate some kind of an agreement or um, you barter something in exchange. And that, I, I think, is something that gives the players real input, that they feel like, they're not just, I don't want to say characters, because they, they are obviously characters, but they're not characters that are in a play that's following a set script. That This is your line at this point in the movie. This is your point at this line of the play. That I can do something that changes the outcome of what's happening based upon what my character wants to do, rather than saying, no, the adventure says you have to do this, so sorry, you're out of luck. Uh, you didn't do it that way. Too bad. Thank you for playing. Enjoy the rest of your day, sort of thing. And on the pre-written note, if something has a solution, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, a writer only has one mind. 
And if the players come up with a different solution that leads to the same result, you got to let them have it, uh, even in pre-written or your own adventure that you're writing. If you wrote down a single solution and they come up with a clever idea that leads to that same solution, you, you got to throw them the bone, in my opinion. Absolutely. That happened to me, actually. I was just running uh, an event at Gary Con, and it was a mystery adventure. So, you know, it did have a solution to it, but there are multiple ways to come upon it. And there was a riddle, and one of the players came up with a good idea to beat it without even actually having to solve the riddle. And it worked out pretty well because the character felt that instead of saying, no, you've got to solve the riddle, you can't pass this unless you do that, they were able to come up with a way. And as a GM, you were able to adapt to it and say, you know what? That actually works. That's pretty cool. Run with it. And the players feel more engaged when that happens rather than the simple shut them down and say, nope, sorry, that's not what the book says. Too bad. I found with running pre-written adventures, by the time you get to the higher levels, generally the track no longer exists. Just, you know, If you're keeping the players on that tight of a leash, it's just not fun. So there's always the creative... Um, you know, I, I had I had one as a Pathfinder AP. We're on book two, and a player found a way, and I, and I went through and I looked at it, and he totally broke the game. Uh, so I basically had to rewrite the whole ending of book two and add in parts of book three. Uh, so at a certain point, no matter how, I mean, unless you're really trying to railroad it, I mean, you're you're gonna wind up catering to the players anyway instead of the story. I'm curious, um, how much do y'all uh, go into you know when you sit down to create an adventure for your players how much do you uh do ahead of time and say okay well we're gonna have this uh this layer over here and there's this big boss um before necessarily knowing what the players are are you know if they're even gonna jump on that or do you wait until they say hey we'd like to go after such and such uh do you leave it kind of open or do you do a lot of prep work before you actually um sit down I try to I try to prep the most obvious answers, but my players will never stick to choices A, B, and C. So I, I, I try to get the most obvious answers set and then try to um, come up with backup, I guess, encounters that I can work with. Uh, you know, I, I've got, you know, players are at a certain location. You've got these three major events or major uh, uh, locations coming up. Uh if they go any other direction, it may not be as big of an encounter or a, a situation. So um, I try to have some backup ideas, but I plan for the major events. And then if they don't do it, they don't do it. For a brand new game, three sessions worth, because I don't know how long they're going to spend at the tab in five minutes or five hours. Um, so I'd like to have as much content at the beginning as possible. Going forward from that initial session, no more than a session's worth. Yeah, I'm on board with PEX with that. I, I would like to have a, a good amount ready for um, the initial beginning of the game because that's when you really don't know where they're going to go or want to do. And once you kind of get into things and you have an idea of where they're going, um, you generally don't have to prep out as far uh, in advance, I find at least. Okay. Yeah, I, I find that I'm pretty similar to all of y'all. I, I start out uh, with a lot of uh, a lot of content, a lot of detail for the first session. Um, but one of the things that I do like to do is create um, a lot of side random encounters and just have them sitting there. Uh, a lot of times, I'll use them for uh, campaigns where the if the uh, characters decide they want to travel, 
because I'm not a big fan of uh, random encounters on the road and rolling random encounters every time you move a hex or something. Uh, it just that always felt really dry to me and it felt tedious. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has felt that way, but I like to have that kind of like where they're moving, you know, if they're moving along and then I've got a, a random pre-built thing like, oh, well, here's this, uh, you know, a standing circle of stones and something is is going on there. There's a white underneath the the mound there or something uh, to give them sort of a side adventure that just feels planned. And I've just sort of got it uh, in my in my folder somewhere and I can pull it out. And I think one of the most fun adventures I ever played that was a plain as day quote unquote railroad game. And it's called to slay a dragon. And very upfront the players know they have to go kill a dragon. But the how you approach to get to that end, I mean it's kinda like killing Strahd in uh Ravenloft. I mean everybody knows that's what you gotta do to end it. But all the quests and stuff in the town, um the NPCs kind of like Zerg the players and they give them like 30 quests around it before they go kill a dragon. And that's what they want to. They can go from right from the get go to go kill said dragon, but probably, that's probably not a good idea. Maybe get a little bit of experience or stuff under their belt first kind of deal. So I find those and that adventure was very enjoyable to all my players. I ran that for three or four different tables and they all loved it, but it was clearly a railroad. And as I see in the chat, as people are talking about, improvisation is a, is a key thing in running this type of uh, adventure to make it not feel like it's or the outcome is already predetermined or your path is predetermined. Um, how do you do improv? How do you know people do it differently? It's some people can just draw things from. If I've like somebody says I want to talk to this guy, and I'm like, well, who is this guy? Oh crap! I better make up somebody in my head. I either make up somebody I know. So I'm very familiar with it or some base it on some character I'm familiar with or, um, you know, and, and handle it that way. One of the things I'm not a big fan of just rolling dice and creating random encounters, um, especially if they don't seem to make sense for what's going on. Just having, you know, being in the middle of uh, a desert and having a random bunch of orcs show up to me just doesn't make a lot of sense. And it seems kind of contrived, but uh you know, to prevent that feeling that you're being railroaded, improv is really important. I, I think it's a huge part. And I think it really separates the best GMs from the okay GMs, the ability to adapt on the spot and come up with something and keep the story flowing without bogging down or trying to say, no, players, stop what you're doing. Go back on the, sh go back on the train. Uh, the train has to go here, and you're a little bit behind schedule. So. I mean, on the topic of random encounters, I find that no matter how big you make the table of that random encounter thing, you're going to get the same results over and over again on a few things, if not a lot. And so what I like to do is take that and like, okay, how are 15 different ways I can run, I'll use this orc example there. How many, can I come up with 15 ways to run orcs that are different each time they encounter that or roll that up? That makes it a little bit more unique or special each time. You know, feel like so, and but the whole victimized of why the orcs here in the first place—that's a hard one to uh, get around, and that's the thing I I kind of fight and struggle with myself as a DM. Sure, I I always you have to put thought into what they're doing, 
and you have to sort of feel it as as the GM or the DM. Um, if if you are, are going to commit to, oh, okay, well now we've got these random orcs out here in the desert. Uh, yeah, like you said, why are they there? Um, so instead of just saying, okay, hey, you know, the party, hey, here's six orcs. Uh, great. You know, that just sounds like, you know, you just threw something at me that are a bunch of meat stacks to burn down their health with. That's that's a mechanic. That's kind of boring. Uh, instead, you know, what if they're, you know, they're out there um, and they're searching for some uh, treasure that they're chiefed and buried out in the desert somewhere. And, you know, they're they're sitting around a camp and they're thirsty, you know, and maybe they're they're dehydrating. Uh You've got to have that, you know, that sort of a thing. Now, maybe the players have an opportunity to sneak up on these orcs. Um, you know, so now you've got a m much more interesting story. It's a side plot. It's something. Um, you know, again, that that kind of goes into that improvisation type thing. Um, but yeah, it, as a general rule, I don't like rolling the random encounters. Um because of that, because it begins to feel, you know, if you do it again the next day and you do it again, that you're, you're like, man, how many orcs are there in this desert? <laughs> so, yeah, I think, uh, I think a lot of ways to maybe conceal it and actually define what railroading is. Uh, let's see what else do we have here. Ooh. I did have something kind of funny to share. Uh, I don't know. It's just something uh, in a game. Uh, it, 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 I don't know. It kind of walks that line of railroading pegs. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, um, we had a, a, a chill game. It was sort of a short, uh, it was only three or four adventures. Um, I think we ran four. And the uh, player characters, it was set in 1844, and they'd been hired in uh in london by a vampire they didn't realize it was a vampire to go and uh deal with one of his uh, adversaries um and his adversary vampire uh was based out of new orleans so the characters traveled to new orleans his uh boat and you know they they were investigating there and what was funny about it was i knew at a certain point that i could count on my characters to do something and so i just sort of wrote it in as a possibility and sure enough one of the characters uh because the uh there was a carpenter that was building um coffins and they were beginning to amass a vampire army um, so one of the characters paid somebody off to actually go and torch the carpentry shop. So then I hand them, um, at the end of the session, I handed them a, uh, news clipping. It was like just from printed out from online of the great fire that swept through new Orleans in 18 in spring of 1844 that burned the city down. So just kind of a, you know, one of those things. Cool. So sandboxes or best practices in advertising a new product. <laughs> I think sandbox is pretty wide open. We can have fun with that for a little while. So let's go with that. Yeah, I think we're leaning towards the sandbox. 
Well, we hear the term thrown around a lot, and here's my first question to you guys. Is a pre-written adventure that calls itself Sandbox really a sandbox? Ooh. Oh, I know. I, I don't think it's a sandbox unless it's puddle-proof. Right, you need a lid to keep the cats out. Right. I kind of think it's hard to do a sandbox outside of being part of a campaign setting. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. What we called sandbox, at least in Frog God, was uh, Razor Coast. And Razor Coast um, was an adventure. Well, it was actually a large adventure that was part of the campaign setting and actually had a flowchart to show which various ways you can go with it. Um, but if you deviated from any part of the main adventure, uh, you were pretty much fine because there was a lot of material on the campaign setting that while not presented in an adventure format, was presented with enough detail to allow the GM to come up with something or perhaps create some kind of a, an adventure idea on the fly without having to, I don't want to say improvise because improvise is still a good thing, but, um, you know, and, that's what my at least definition of a sandbox is in my mind when if i'm writing something is there's enough room for the players to go in any direction and depending upon your ability to improvise you can deal with it it's probably the easiest way for me to say it right i think i'm on the same page as tom here and in my brain what sandbox means to me is I, I can literally go off in any, in any direction and not hit a wall or a barrier, and I can keep going off in that direction as long as I want to, or however long the DM or the table can tolerate it. <laughs> I think there's one thing I did is, is, um, is a pre-written adventure that kind of takes place on a, a island chain, and it's it's one of those things where you, you need to solve the puzzle, and you know everything is just crammed into this one little area. So there are level 12, level 15 encounters, and there's level 1, level 2 encounters, so it's um, you have to scope the situation out in order to solve the puzzle. So you've got you've got this next step you have to take, and if you don't research it, you know your level two character is going to go into a den of tools. You know, so it really is sandbox, but it's well relatively sandbox. Um, but there is a, a linear story that needs to be followed. But I don't limit them to where they can go, and we've killed many a piece that way. So, do you do anything um, with regards to? Uh, I, I know in some of the old games, there would be the idea that you have very high-level areas or whatever, or you have an encounter that, you know, like the dragon or whatever. That's um, <clears throat> going to be very challenging for your low-level characters. Um, do you do anything to account for that, or you just let them go run off straight off into the dragon's den and, and burn? Let them burn. Running in the mountain. Yes, that's my. That was my first thing. Is, is I explained to them. Number one, there are encounters here that are way above your pay grade, and number two, do not be afraid to run. You know, you run into it, and your buddy gets instantly incinerated. Don't sit there and try to save him somehow. Just get the hell out of there. Um, so, I mean, okay, I gave them as players a warning, and um, I do. I try to give like a foreboding atmosphere. Try to give them like even if they're you know, uh, perception checks so or they wouldn't be able to tell something that was going on, I'll throw in a little clue, just kind of like a little cookie trail, 
just uh, for them to say, you know, either, either, you know, they're going to jump on it and say, Ooh, there's going to be a monster up here with a lot of treasure. Or they're going to say, wait a minute, that's probably not a good idea for us to keep following it. Behind door number one is a skeleton. Behind number door number two is a armored Cthulhu hell beast from sure. Shadow Plane. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, um, I think it's important to have the conversation, you know, with the uh, uh, with your players to set an expectation of what your game's going to be like. Um, also, yeah, I, I generally don't believe in um, uh, creating the entire world where there's whole air, you know where uh, the road between this town and that town is like, you know, level 10 and above because it doesn't make sense, right? How in the world would um, villagers uh, transport goods from one place to another? It just, you know, it, 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 the world would be too hostile um, and your civilizations have to go back. And so you have to consider that. Right, you've got like the MMO geography. It's like you go over there and the goblins are 10 times stronger. It's it's more of like the the general settings are all the same, but you know a cave up on the mountain over here is going to be a little different than a cave in the woods over here. And it's funny if you think about a dungeon itself and all the baddies that are in them themselves. Why the hell aren't they eating and killing each other? It just doesn't make sense. And I think sometimes on those lines, you kind of have to draw the line between reality and gameplay, kind of deal. Right. Well, sometimes they do. Right. Um, it's that's part of the story of the dungeon as you figure that out. So you can have, you could have characters walking up on a situation like that, and I've had that. I've had situations where, um, you know, player, we're they're exploring, uh, you know, an old dwarven stronghold that was overrun by goblins, and the goblins, uh, were uh, basically uh, pinned in because the humans outside got fed up uh, and they had to basically retreat. And so when the, the characters wandered up onto their, uh, you know, into their camps and stuff inside, uh, there was some cannibalism going on. I think there's also the expectation in, in the quote unquote conventional adventure that there's no encounters in the adventure, or at least presented as herein that the players can't deal with by simply killing it or defeating it. Whereas in the true sandbox where you can venture in any direction, that expectation is gone that there are encounters here that we can't be, and we have to run from. Whereas in a true, I mean, in a typical adventure, if you're going to do like the old point A to point B, like we we're just talking about before, and you need some item. And the only way to get the item is to kill a, um, a great worm, red, great worm. I mean, the player's going to feel cheated by that because there's no way they're going to do it unless, you know, they have some stroke of luck or some, you know, something in the in their arsenal that wasn't expected. But in the true sandbox, that's not really the case, that the players can be expected to run. And there's no consequences in terms of completing the quote-unquote adventure sure. for doing so. I mean, that's that's what would happen, right? I mean, it's it's much more believable than the, you know, you've got to finish this. And I think what makes a good sandbox initial, well, in general, even in pre-written adventures, if you want to call them those, is there's a lot of content, more content that they can possibly do to complete whatever their maximum level would be. So you could circle the map twice over, and if you're doing random encounters, you'd probably... I don't know, be max level by then. So the map has to be huge, in my opinion, or never-ending, kind of like a 
a grid if you remember algebra fun times. That's I'm curious about that actually. Do y'all prefer having like a a fully like fleshed out map, world map, uh or do you uh a completely blank canvas or something in between? I'm for something in between. I think something in between is the, I mean, a fully fleshed map is going to be gigantic in terms of its size and its content. And something that's just very basic is going to be very small, require, put a lot of impetus on the GM to fill in the blanks. So I think something in the middle where you get some ideas, just a few seeds, and you from there can run with it if you have to, rather than having a fully fleshed out world map. I mean, you're talking you know, at least several hundred pages of material to go through. Right, like I enjoy like the few major cities lined out, and then you know, it, it, you know, little in between here is orc country and the small villages that are constantly defending against orc attacks. Perfect, I'll make a village. Okay, cool. Because that's that's kind of what we've done um, in uh, in Songguard is we uh, basically made it so that we have some detailed areas, and we've got this world map, and there's areas that. You know, you can uh, start their city areas like Hotathem and stuff where you can adventure around and those territories. And then there's other areas on the map where there's no labels. And we've just said we're never going to create content for them um, so that people can go off. It's like you've got your your safety zone that you can start adventuring in and then you can kind of go out and make up what you want. Trying to remember his name. Uh, I think it's John Stater, who does uh, the Land of Nod or Hexcrawl Chronicles from Frog God Games. I mean, he puts out an issue. I think he's on like 35, 36 now, of a little piece of his gigantic world. But his gigantic world's one big sandbox, more or less. But there's enough content in one of those books for I don't know three or five years of gaming at least. And there's no way to play them all out. You kind of pick. You want to pick and choose what you want to play within side that kind of universe and i guess it goes with any setting but i bring that up because his world's huge that would drive me bonkers i'd be trying to pick which one <laughs> and i usually yeah, I ask my players too right you say well what you know a lot of times i'll i'll ask them you know well what kind of setting you know would you like before we sit down for a campaign and uh it'll take a little while before i get votes back you know, on something like that, but that helps too. Yeah, with with me, especially if it's if a pre-written campaign setting, I'm I'm a bigger fan of the lore than the actual, uh, uh, you know, nitty gritty of the maps. You know, if you give some kind of story about events that have, like I said, like the orc attack thing, you know what I mean? If it's, um, you know, you've got these clans from the north that are attacking, you know, the dwarves on the south, you know what I mean? Um, I prefer that type of stuff that gives you the environment. And then from there, you can kind of work with it. But I'm a bigger fan of lore than, uh, than actual detail. Yeah, I just dropped a link in chat for what I was talking about there. But yeah, I mean, um, I guess we should talk about this. I mean, I think we've talked about how we, what are the good elements from a good sandbox? What makes a bad sandbox? Ooh, I, I like 
a, a world, and I think Melker was talking about it before, that feels organic. It doesn't feel like we're just shoving in areas just to appeal to various um, uh, play styles. Uh, I guess that's probably the best way to describe it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. I, I have every respect for Paizo, but I hated Galarian. I, I thought that was... I know. It just seemed so... Like, well, we need a Ravenloft area. Okay, we'll put that here. We need a um, technology area. Okay, we'll stick that here. We got need this. Oh, we'll stick that there. And it just, for me, it felt very contrived. Like, we're just creating a world just to accommodate various play styles rather than a world that seemed like it naturally evolved. I mean, you didn't like the Candyland map? I did not like the Candyland map. No. <laughs> Well, that's like um, we're you know we're playing we're playing through Jade Region and and Galarian and and you've got um, it's a pretty classic story but you're basically taking a caravan across the world so we've got different like paths that we're taking and and yeah like looking at looking at Paizo maps like every little village is accounted for already and they give you I mean, for the most part it's like like there's one village it's like well this place was a haven for werewolves and then this uh, goddess sent the, something in there and then they killed them and now they live in the woods you know so. It's it's it is a little too overdeveloped, but I I do enjoy that rich lore. But at the same time, if I'm going, if I'm taking a caravan from point A to point B, I would love to have some creativity in it, um, without having to worry about podcast listeners say you're not sticking to the lore. So y'all have to forgive me because I'm not really a Pathfinder player, so. Candyland. It sounds, uh, from the description, it sounds like it's a little ins- uh, MMO inspired in that that sort of sense of design where we're just going to create a zone here that has a certain flavor or uh, trope or feel to it. Yeah, it really is. It's like, I don't, I don't know if the original thought was, let's make a place for everybody um, versus, you know, this is how you can run. You know, a desert setting. You know, instead, it's like, all right, we're going to make Kadira. This is this is the location. These are the major cities. You know, so every, everything is kind of pre-mapped out for you, and they really went out of their way to try to make sure that there is a geographic location for everybody. There's a pretty accurate map, and Melkor's probably going to get the biggest chuckle out of that. Wow, that's nice. Really well done. Yeah, it's pretty I, I, accurate, to be fair. I feel like when you're going to put things in, <laughs> you definitely need to put thought into, you know, if you say, well, this is a werewolf area or whatever. Okay, sure. Um, but you need to put some thought into what that means and why is it confined to this area? And what does, you know, what are the impacts? Or if, if you've got like a high technology uh, area, um, you know, again, it's the same thing, right? Because that, uh, suddenly, you know, if things like technology are available, um, it's going to impact everybody's lives. So why is it limited or confined to one kingdom? Um, and, you know, you have to put a lot of thought into that and a lot of thought into how uh, how it stays confined or is it confined, you know, um, because that changes everything. It does. Things tend to not stay that way. Right. If technology is available, it will tend to leak out. Um, and why, why technology instead of magic, you know, all those questions. And, and those sometimes are hard questions to answer while you're improving at the table. 
Um, but they do require forethought before you, you know, just jump in and say, yeah, th these people have laser guns. I found a Rob. Hey, Rob. Let me unmute you. You hear me? Yes. Oh, good morning. Sorry. Yeah. That's okay. No, no excuse, just actually overslept. Well, sometimes we need that. Uh, we are talking about sandboxes now. Anything out of the sun you want to talk about the, about those? Uh, that was my wife. <laughs> um, yeah, we're talking about sandbox. Uh, anything in particular about sandbox? Obviously, I missed the first 40 minutes of conversation. I think uh, we're talking about one. bad one. Yeah, what makes a bad sandbox versus a good one, but we're on bad specifically at the moment. Well, what makes a bad... Okay, so let me ask you this. What makes for a bad trip? Either you have bad company or you went to a place that you thought was interesting and it turned out to, to bore the heck out of you. You know? So that would make a, uh, a bad sandbox. Assuming that we're not talking about you know the DM, the referee not running it like a sandbox at all. Let's, so assuming that the, the referee is there and doing everything to try, you know, player could literally do anything they want, but they're still unhappy with the campaign. Bad sandbox would be they visit a place that they're not interested in the people, i.e. the NPCs, they're not interested in the locale, and they're not interested in what's available to them. So, so, I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, there's nothing worse than going to visit the Wizard Tower, and there's nothing wizardry about it, or there's no wizard in there at all. <laughs> I do have to say, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of red herrings. It drives my players insane. Well, you know, it. I mean, players can buy disappointment. They could go to a Wizard Tower and there's no wizard, and long as that winds up making sense, contact like. Oh, you mean that? What's what Farmer Bob was trying to talk right. we, we, That just went over our head. Versus, you go to a wizard tower with a wizard and just the stupid wizard tower. That's a stupid wizard. Um, that happened, you know? You go, you go, to, a, go to a town and it's not what you thought it would be. It's like, not sure why everybody's talking about this place. I want to come back again. Yeah, it's not what you signed up for. Right. For example, my campaign, I had a civil war for a long time. And I had one group of players who, you know, they started up a bunch of characters in that region. And, you know, I'm willing to do whatever they want, but, you know, a civil war is you know, dominates the background a lot. And they didn't like them. So it was very quickly in, it was obvious they didn't want to deal with it. They didn't like group uh, conflict. But lucky for me, because I've been running it so long, there were plenty of other surrounding lands or even, you know, within the region that they could go to with civil war effectively did not matter for what they wanted to do. And that's what they did. They just, they left the city-state of the Event of Overlord, where the Civil War was happening, and they went north and uh, went to the Dwarves of Thunderhold and had a bunch of adventures there instead, where the Civil War didn't affect them. 
I'm not saying that's an example. Or fab, but it was a bad sandbox while they were city. They weren't interested in all the conflicts being missed. So it was sort of a, I guess it's a GM miss on what the the players were interested in. Is that fair? Yeah. The thing that they overcome that problem is to remember that your sandbox entire world. That if you only prepared one kingdom or one region, then you need to be prepared for the possibility players might not wind up liking adventuring in that kingdom or region. But if you have prepared enough so that if they can go to a neighborly land, a neighboring kingdom, different, still fantasy, obviously, but different in feel, say like a merchant republic opposed to a feudal realm, or, uh, or a Roman-style empire as opposed to a feudal realm, or a place that is at peace, that's not at war, or a place is at war, but not at peace, then your campaign won't turn out to be bad box because they, they can choose to leave, establish themselves in their area. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I just give the definitive answer to the question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think the, uh, the one of the worst cases that I can remember where something didn't meet with my expectations as a player, uh, I had, this was many years ago, we were playing uh, original edition of Cyberpunk, and our uh, game master actually, you know, about, oh, about an hour into the first session had me chasing fairies and legends and you know magical beings and you know i just looked at him and said i thought we were going to play cyberpunk you know i mean if if we were if we want to play shadow run or we want to play something else but you know this this feels this doesn't feel like cyberpunk because cyberpunk was you know purely a, a technological uh genre and and that's what i thought we were signing up for at the time um and i didn't finish you know i just said that this i i don't really have an interest in playing you know um that's why what i call i know i give it a term sounds all official everything but call it the initial concept what it is first thing i do i sell my campaign is give the players the choice of three situations. Generally stuff when it comes to fantasy, stuff happens just a quad one. You can be a merchant here, venture traditional ventures here, or you can be like associated with the major guild, uh, you know, venture associated with the major guild here. Here's what's going on, which one's interesting. And generally we hash it out. Sometimes uh it, we, we have a little back and forth until we arrive at something that sounds interesting. Then I go to each player one-on-one. So I ask what kind of character you play. Go into the back. And no, this is nothing. This is like nor the back and forth that everybody does with friends 
before the start of the campaign. And you go back and forth with them. So you want to play a fighter? Well, here's some options for fighters. Place that you go start out in. And so we we detail, and it quickly becomes, you know, in that car. If if I was running a campaign with you, it will quickly come out conversation that you're not interested in fairies, or in the initial conversation, I say this campaign will also have fairies and legends and stuff. And wait a minute, that sounds cyber. We run or sounds shadow run. Can we run something cyberpunk? And everybody would talk about it, and we would agree. Okay, let's run for this more straight cyberpunk. Then proceed on. More commonly, it's usually one or two. It's some particular kind of detail at the character level that I really need to fine-tune things for an individual player. And that's why I talk to each player about where they, how they want to start out, not only within the group, but within the campaign, so that they're not just starting blind. Because if you start blind, then it's going to be, it's really... When we sold, when the Waterlands of the High Fantasy uh, box set was sold by Necromancer Games, all of us authors, dozens of us, wrote different sections. We're promoting it, started getting back reports of campaigns failing. People found it uninteresting. When problems that we didn't felt we had with our campaign, we all realized they were literally plopping players in the village and saying, go forth and explore. And that not interesting. So not, the, the, the number of players who are interested in start is a lot smaller than the number of players who are interested in fantasy or, you know, who want some more freedom in their campaign. So we started changing what, how we explained it. You know, you pick a village, you describe what you, what's going on, and you see if the players like it first. And if they do, then you go on and kind of start a new campaign. So, so. I mean, coattailing a, a bit of what Rob is saying here, uh, one of the things I've implemented over the last couple of years um would be before we even start whatever thing we're about to go on, um, I, I go with the players one-on-one -on -one and I ask them, what's something really cool you want your character to do in this adventure? And I make sure to slide that in. It may be at the very beginning, maybe at the middle, maybe very toward the end, or maybe after whatever adventure I'm running, it's like that's the, that's the climax, the end. Are we completed the adventure? And this, this is just one, one last thing you guys can do to complete the individual player's character goal. And um, I think incorporating that into a sandbox is a good way to go about, uh, or any adventure, and honestly, it doesn't even have to be a sandbox. Oh, I agree. And the thing is, you got to keep in mind, running sandbox or any type of standing in the middle village square, think of everything you could be Driving. In theory, it's a place as real as the, you know, the the town park, town. A lot of details you're describing, but so, but you don't have time, and you only have the limitations of your voice, and maybe sometimes you have a even even if you have a diorama, still limit uh, of that. So what you have to do is one, pick out what's important. For anything that the players decide, like cops are around you, that's important. Then two, 
what's important to the interest of the player, that's where what you said play. By knowing that, you start pointing out the details important to the players of the game or interest. I remember very early on when I started DMing, I made the grand old mistake of confronting the players when they are in the end with uh, too much questing, too many options, I guess. Kind of like uh, the dwarves coming to Bilbo's house, just one right after the other. And they're just overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do, where to start, or um, this, that, and the other. And though they had a lot of choices, they didn't feel like they had any choice because they were just confused. Exactly. Well, that's really the fine line, I think, is where trying not to have the confusion and the feeling of being overwhelmed set in. Like, there's too many things, as opposed to when we were talking earlier about having no choice, having too many choices. And the players just seem to be completely baffled as to where to go, what to do, what anything has to do with anything else. And it just becomes a big jumbled old mess of you know, 40 different subplots going in 40 different directions. Almost like those crappy movies they make, those, um, I'm trying to remember the name of them, like Valentine's Day or New Year's Day, this, throwing a bunch of stars in together, having them be in the movie for five minutes, have some stupid subplot, and then say, well, it all makes sense at the end. And the problem is it doesn't. People just get, just feel like there's too much, and there's just satur- too much saturation. I've been inundated with information, and I just don't know how to process it. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is, that can be a problem. And I had that happen to me numerous. Or sometimes it's not even about the quantity of choices. The kind of choice they're making, just don't get one side versus the other because A, it relies too much on knowing about the world, the setting, or it's something personally that they're not, never really thought about and interested in. They were never interested in it. And now they're confused on how to. So, what I try to do to overcome is I'll I'll take off my hat, put on my coach hat, and because one thing I I realize that okay, while the player may have not lived in the Guadalajara, their characters had. So again, due to the limitation, the fact that we're all this is all a dialogue between me and the player, and we're just not explaining everything or showing everything that would be would happen if they are uh were really there as characters then there's going to be a point where i need to be a coach and just simply break it down to basic hey i know you're a little bit uh you know the decision you're not sure what about this here's what your character would and i'll explain it try to get it down to to a three three bullet point uh, list, and uh, then then after that, generally they feel comfortable about making decisions for them or party. I mean, another fun tactic is um, take something like Wilderlands or something really big, build a map, plop it down for the players before you even start. Like, what looks cool to you guys? Where do you want to start without giving them any kind of information? Or they'll point to something and ask, what's really here? You can give them a brief description kind of thing and just kind of go from there. And that's where you're going to start the adventure. Um, and it can play out differently every time you do that, too, if it's the same thing as well. I think it, it helps, too, to try to tease out the uh, the natural leader if you've got a leader in the party. Because there's 
a lot of times there's players that are just going to kind of the players themselves have a personality that they're just going to kind of go along and that permeates into their characters. And so that decision-making about where to go can be um, uh, difficult, you know, like they don't want to rock the boat or whatever. I, I get that a lot in my parties. Um, and so trying to find that person who is more of the, the leader, or the person to take command or at least suggest the idea and get them comfortable with that um, sometimes is important. Yeah, I have to keep that. I, I, I've run into that myself, but I got I also maintain I had sort of a rotation because even those quiet players have their own go things that they're happy with that they're able uh, able to do. So yeah. I'm make sure that the leader doesn't drown my verbal bandwidth with their what they I mean generally most of the party lead types are, are well meaning and stuff, but sometimes they tend to overwhelm what the quiet people want to do in terms of favor of, of more group goals. But I make sure that, you know, everybody's individual goals goals will at some point have a yeah, that's a very good point. Um, it, it's challenging sometimes working with a, a, a group of quiet players because, you know, you you uh, I think you usually know you're successful when all of a sudden you draw them out and they start interacting with your NPCs. Um, uh, you know, that, at that point, you know, OK, well, you've got them. Uh, but but it can be challenging, right, because you're trying to get a read on what it is that they want to do. Uh, and if they're not volunteering a lot up front, uh, it's even more so like at a convention. That's, I, I mean, I find that intimidating. If I've got a quiet player at a convention, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what is it that they're looking for? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm wearing my coach hat a lot at a, convention, a game or a game store event where there's mostly a bunch of strangers at my table. Um, to refer back to an earlier point about uh, coaching players, a good example of that is an adventure I'm working Russell Lord. And the very first encounter of the adventure, players are on the road. They run, they, they hear, they're camped for the night and they they're, uh, hear cries for help 100 yards down the road. And when they go there, they see this uh, boy and this girl being beset by uh, orcs. And uh, they have, they, of course, the idea is generally most potteries will, will try to save them from the orcs. And after the encounter, they will notice the boy is wearing peasant clothing. The girl is wearing noble clothing. And I've run this about four times. And two of them, I had to, because uh, the players obviously weren't getting it. I said, <laughs> I took a little. I, little, I took a little uh, brief halt and said, "You know that this is unusual. Peasant boy, noble girl, by themselves on the road, not a normal. You know, this is, is first of all socially is uh, unheard. You know, it's like it's socially faux pas, and." Uh, you know, it's just something that it, it's not going to happen. And then 
then I backed that up with role-playing the kid because it's obvious to hide something or get the, the, you know, literally trying to, even though they're there and they're the only ones there, they're really trying to party not to pay attention to themselves at that one night. And, uh, but yeah, that's a detail. That's an example of what I call it. Detail that many, because we all live in the 21st century, don't get that, you know, rich girl, poor guy is a bigger deal than what they would. Right. Dad would not approve. And there's a possible story hook there. Um, But of course, if they ignore it, they ignore it and you just move on. Right. I mean, Uh if it's a, if it's a true sandbox, otherwise you have to club them over the head with it. And that gets tedious and tiresome for you and probably them. Yeah. Basically. Premise. Do you want me to tell me what, what the context of that encounter is? Well, uh, I, I'm guessing, right, that, that but, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. The adventure, the seats of the rest. The inciting, the, the, uh, the whole point of it is, is that there is a fairy world. And fairies in my campaign uh, are sentient, are, are magical. They're formed out of magic, and they are sentient. And the reason they're formed out of magic of strong emotion. Uh, negative emotions uh, give birth to winter phase. Positive emotions give birth to summer. And they uh, gain power or maintain themselves by getting reenacting the stories they give birth. And the more powerful uh, fairies have control over a variety of stories. So they have a variety of ways of power. This particular fairy, the Ruffet uh, has a particularly powerful story in that a village uh, fell into dissension, weakened its defenses, and were wiped out by a marauding band of orcs. And the emotion, despair, and all that gave was the one with the circumstances that gave him birth and continues to fuel fuel his existence over the centuries. And he wants the same fate to befall this village. So to this end, he has sent one of his minions to entice a group of orcs to consider marauding, kind of subtly pointing him at this village. And he caused, he noticed that in this village, a peasant boy and noble girl, the daughter of the knight, who's the uh, head of the village, had fallen in love. That the lord of the village is a monastery that is corrupt and not paying attention, all ripe to for causing dissension and weakening the defenses of those. So, the, the, when the players arrive on the scene, so to speak, the the fairy they had a fairy. You know, the fairy, he sent one of his pixies there to weave them a magic romantic story, if you can imagine, almost Disney-esque. And they just convinced them that the only way they can consummate their true love is to run away from their father. So that's when the players run situation. So they have the choice of ignoring the couple, sending them on their way, in which case uh, they'll meet their fate. Some 
Woe eyed the uh, couple in a nearby cave. And some will return them back to the village. All three of them I weave into the subsequent uh, chain of events, and uh, and which impacts, you know, the village falling apart and becoming vulnerable to this marauding band of orcs. So that is the context of the co- uh, encounter. They don't have to resolve it in a particular way, but way they, any way they choose to resolve it will have a Hope that may. I would go with option four: kill the boy and ransom the princess who's wealthy. That's easy. That will I can handle that too. That would be very interesting. That would actually probably wind up uniting the village and you guys. And depending on how the uh, party wrecked the village, if they either the party gets killed. Or the party managed to force the village to surrender. Either case, the Russet Lord, the waiting out there with his rotting band of orcs. And the moment's right. Do you ever have any players say their characters decide, ah, not our concern, and just keep going? Well, yes. But not for this particular adventure, because the whole, the whole reason I... If I am going to run, put this, you know, you know, plant this seed in their way, they have a reason to go to the village. So when I run this invention game, the reason is is that they were hanging around the bishop's court looking for a job, and the bishop said there's been a discrepancy that the uh, the monks are late, their uh, monthly tie. Go and get my tie. Find out why they're late. They're late more often than not. I'm tired of this. Go and fix that. Get my tie and fix the problem. And he'll give them a writ to go up there. And... So, how, how whatever ha- whatever happens with that encounter, players are winding up. With... The other alternatives is, is that uh, if if other ways I I could weave it into my campaign is uh, they're going to. The, the monasteries have a, a pilgrimage site. So if the players are going, player, I can put it in that encounter in front of a group of players, go into it to see healing. They're injured or something. Uh, you know, I, I got about a half a dozen hooks that I can throw them. You know, one that's involving parties that are mostly thieves types. Another, you know, it, it's a matter, when, when I do these kind of adventures, make sure there's multiple ways get the players interested so that, that they're in the midst of the situation. It isn't like domino. Dominoes don't have to fall in order in order for the player, to, for the situation that's currently happening become the player's problem. Alright. Let's go on to our last topic here. Best practices in, an, in advertising a new product or, I guess, and or services, because, like, Melkor does a podcast, so that is a service. And a product, I suppose. Well, it depends on your... First of all, you got to start out with what your um, your base audience is. I, I know for us, and I, again, I don't do the advertising. I don't do any of that. But I know we have a pretty extensive um, email list of past customers. 
So obviously our past customers are typically our present customers as well. Um, we have Facebook followers and I'm not involved in Twitter. I don't touch that one. Um, so we hit our, basically hit our Facebook and social media posts with that. And we will also typically hand out something, um, whether it's a brief piece of material about a new product that's going to be coming out at cons, uh, because a lot of the con folk are also our customers. Um, so for getting the word out for those new products, that's typically what we hit. We'll also hit Kickstarters. So we'll put an update in past Kickstarters um, because, again, those are people we know have bought from us in the past. And we'll send out, hey, we got a new Kickstarter coming out. It's blah, blah, blah. It's World of Lost Lands. Uh, you checked out this. You checked out that before. You know, you can check out this new one. So social media, email lists, um, past Kickstarters, um, those are typically the ones we hit. I don't know what other people's experiences are with that. Oh, yeah. oh, good. Uh, oh, go ahead, Rob. Um, yeah, you you need to have a social for the for for the level that we operate at. You need to have a social media presence. I have a blog. Used to post actively on Google Plus. I do. I I'm do MeWe post now, but you know, and then I participate. Most of my eyeballs, I think my participation on forums and Discord. This again, thank you, Peck, for helping oh. Eric Chris place. Oh, you're most welcome. So that's uh so if you're new with this, your first social once you get about hundred to two hundred uh visits, eyeballs on your stuff, then uh probably you'll you'll have a satisfactory response first product. Um, at least in terms of, of numbers who are people willing to try it. And uh, the other thing I got to stress, though, you have to remember your product is highly unlikely to be the, the new thing. It's going to be a thing. And the whole idea is the best attitude to take is friendly and say, hey, I am doing blah. This is key. If you find this useful, this is why I'm doing. This is this is why I'm doing, and I hope you find this useful for your camp. You're being humble, and uh, that attitude will carry you far. And by saying this is why I'm using campaign in my own stuff, will 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 help people to determine. Yeah, this can be useful. I can. All right, this is useful or not useful. They're not going to be surprised, and you're likely going to, and because of the friendly attitude, you're going to likely get the people to, you know, click that all important, you know, buy button, get your product. Uh, the rest is, you know, what the, just listen to the rest of these guys, and, you know, it just, depending on where you hang out, and, uh, you know, you just, you just need to get the word out. And uh, the only other thing I would say is when you, if you're going to choose to make an announcement in the forum and you never have done so before, make sure you contact the forum administrator and find out the forum to make those Just don't guess. Just read, the, or hopefully the forum has a rule, bunch of rules posted and one of them tells you where you can post products. 
just follow whatever the form then you'll come off as friendly and enthusiastic the I mean, other way go ahead sorry no i'm done okay um uh, uh going off of rob says reaching out that is i think very vital especially in today trying to stand out i mean if you go over to drive through rpg how many publishers are there or how many podcasts are there if you're like in melkor's world or how many vlogs or, or Twitch things are there? How do you stand out? Well, how you stand out is, uh, in my opinion, is you network with others. And so you, you, you're constantly exposing yourself to a newer, different audience. And over time, that builds your core audience as well. Uh, like the Breakfast Club here, we're all from different companies, but we all kind of know each other now. that We've had an hour-plus conversation. Uh, so building your contact lists um, for those in the industry and those that advertise about the industry, I think is very, very vital um, in tandem with social media. Oh, and another trick. I don't know if people, I'm sure some of you are aware of this. I have a product called Black. PDF is free. The print is stupidly cheap. And when you look at it, it's not a very big product, but you know, you can tell. I treat it like some, like any of my other more more pricey products in that I laid it out, put art, bought art for it, and put it in, for it, all free. And some of that is I wanted to people to have some baseline for for the Waterland style hex crawl formatted setting, you know, numbered hexes and all that. And that they could see what it's about without paying it. The other is I write it off for I write the expenses for it form of advertising. Because in the six years since I've released that, I had seven thousand unique downloads on RPG Now of that product. So when I release something, that's seven thousand emails email address that I can send out uh, a notice. So that's one reason why you would want, might want to release a substantial uh, free product. Hitting on social media, um, some companies, and I'm not a big fan of this, but some of them will actually send like a mass messenger um, message over mess over Facebook Messenger saying we got a new product. Um, I know a couple who do it. Again, I'm not a huge fan of it. I personally don't like getting it. It feels to me, I don't want to say spam, but if you want to put something on your Facebook page or your, or your Twitter page or whatever, that's fine because I'm choosing to go over it. But when somebody blasts me with something on a messenger, I'm not that happy about it. It kind of just reminds me about somebody cold calling my cell phone and wanting to sell me uh, some solar panels or something like that. So... Uh, another source too is there are actual companies out there that do sell or provide mailing lists um, for various places. Uh, I think some of our most untapped customers are people that are kind of sometimes difficult to get a hold of. Uh, I think once in the 80s, I go back pretty far, or even the 70s, uh, two of the biggest bastions of RP of tabletop gaming are the military and college campuses. 
Um, college campuses aren't too hard to hit. There are a lot of social media, but the military can be very hard to hit. Um, you know, because they're always moving around. They can be stationed overseas. Um, and that's kind of an untapped market that I don't know how well we get into uh, reaching out to those customers who are in the military or stationed overseas who, you know, do play RPGs. Well, like what, are the, what do they do? The, the comedians, like, usually have a troop tour. I could see something similar for a group of RPG companies getting together wanting to do the same thing. But you're right, that is a good market to tap into. Absolutely, military. Yeah, the USO. There we go. Is Bob Hope still available for that or no? Sorry, Tom, we're sending you over. I think the last uh, raised dead fail, fell failed. Ah, oh, poor Bob. Oh. Another, thing too, Good. Another thing, too, though, with... Um, with social media is you kind of notice that there are actual percentages. If you look at a company's Facebook followers, you can, if you're going to talk about how many are going to back it, you could probably go about 10%. So I think we have like 6,000 and our typical backers can go from, depending on what product it is from 500 to 1500. So, you know, just remember you're only hitting like you're probably of your followers. You're probably only getting 10% to buy in. Um, I like to try and spread it out and get people who aren't on our Facebook page to share stuff. Um, I typically get my nieces and nephews to do it because they're fairly young and they have people that even if like 2% of their thousands of followers buy into the product, that's, you know, 20 new customers, 20 new backers who now know of Frog God Games and what they sell. And, oh, maybe I'll be a future customer. And on the social media aspect, you, you got to realize there's different demographics for each one. Uh, like Facebook, that, and I'm not saying this to be mean to anybody here, if you're young or old, but Facebook, that's for people 40 and older. And Twitter, you got the late 20s to mid to late 30 crowd. And then you got Instagram, which is 20 and younger. So those are three different demographics, and they all work differently. So like what you post on Facebook it's not exactly what you're going to be posting on Twitter or Instagram. Um, one, because Twitter has like hard limits, but uh, you got to be aware of, of where your audience is and who you're trying to target. And if you're trying to target everybody, you got to do a lot of different things in a lot of different places. Right. And, and the other thing you got to keep in mind, beginning, sort of a little, be a little bit frustrating because nobody knows who you are and you don't know who your audience is. But, uh, over time, once you develop a bit of a following, you'll notice your audience has a particular flavor. They, they, they hang out in certain places. Like, obviously, a lot of my audience is with the OSR. So uh, that will make things easier, but you also got to keep in that you, know, you have to keep in mind that when searching for new avenues for uh, advertisement. Because go in a world of darkness. If I went to go in a world of darkness, and try to help my wares, even on their where they told me to can do that. I doubt I'll get a very good response. And uh, where I might have uh, a better luck on another old school form form that's not D and D, but they're because they're old school, you know, and they're used to probably adapting older modules to their 
game, then you'll probably have better. Yeah, reviewers are also a great way to spread word on a product. Um, I don't know how many are too familiar with uh, Enzeitgeist. Uh, he does reviews. He has a Patreon. And any like shout-out from him on one of your Kickstarters or one of your products is going to go a long way, especially if you have a very positive uh, feedback on your products. Um, you know, the reviews are like anything else. People go on Yelp before you go to a restaurant. How many people go to a restaurant blind and just say, oh, there's a new place down the street. I'm just going to waltz in and see how it is. A lot of people check out, um, you know, reviews on Yelp or whatever products um, that they're looking at before they go. And that's a valuable source. Silence or illusion threatens to devour us all. Oh, no, I'm Sorry. Good. Oh, I was just saying I don't have as much to contribute as y'all. Um, we're still pretty new. Um, we're actually going to be setting up a MUI presence here soon. Um, but yeah, we, we're still pretty new to, the, to all of this advertising stuff. The one thing I will say um, is that I've been at, you know, uh, game shops, uh, running demo games, and I've been to conventions. And, you know, what you said earlier, Rob, really kind of uh, struck a chord with me about uh, being positive and having the right attitude because, um, you know, people look at it and then they say, well, man, I'm really sorry if nobody's here for your game today or whatever. Um, and, you know, I, I just try, like I said, I try to stay positive because why would anybody you know nobody heard of our game necessarily uh very few people had um it's not the reason why people were necessarily coming out to the store that day or whatever um and so you trying to have that humble attitude and being positive about it uh because you know uh before you know it sooner or later people walk up and then they want to engage you and i'd seen this at conventions where you know it's like if other people if they're having an attitude because they're mad or upset or whatever, because, hey, you know, nobody wants to play my game, whatever. Well, now nobody really is going to want to play your game because you're kind of not an engaging person. Um, and and it's kind of arrogant to assume that, um, you know, whatever you've got going on is going to be something that people are going to just drop everything to come do. You've got to be available, I think. And that's key. And like I said, and having that positive attitude. So I think you were totally right about that. The question for you is, uh, what propelled you to try to make a go out of it, so to speak? Did Were you active online, or it was happening mostly in the real world? Do you guys have this idea, hey, we could really offer this? I was actually not very active online. Um, it, it was uh, a campaign that we'd been running um at home for several years and uh 
um, essentially what happened was as we were bringing other people in and out, um, we were, I was getting kind of overwhelmed with having to explain the house rules and the, what you can and can't do. And then people were bringing in supplements for 3.5 with different expectations. And I felt like I was starting to hinder my players rather than, uh, because the, the people that were dedicated that had been there before were really into the setting. Uh, and they, so they understood it, but I felt like, uh, what I wanted to do was turn around and create a game that said, okay, this game is built around the, uh, what we want the world to have. So now you're going to have these features. We're going to have a shaman that actually feels like a shaman and it's not some weird, uh, hacked off hybrid class that we found in a three, five supplement somewhere. Um, and so we just sort of did that on our own and eventually it got to where we realized hey let's let's take this a step further and see if we can go further i had to actually isolate myself from uh um from what was going on in the public mainly because it was intimidating i mean there's so many people that produce so much great content um that i really couldn't i felt like at the time and it was probably a mistake that i couldn't get out there and engage because i was afraid that i would give up um, because I would feel like I could never, uh, you know, that, that just, it's just my wife and I, right. That we would never be able to write enough, uh, good material to keep up, but I, I'm not sure that that's really the case. Um, and in retrospect, I'm really happy that we found, uh, this discord server, um, the tavern, uh, it's really helped us a lot. It's helped us grow a lot and it's helped us make our game better. So yeah. Cool. What I would, what I would you, you have a blog. No, I do not. You, what you should do now that you got a presence here, should start a blog, and just talk about various aspects of what you're doing, and about your setting up, and in a conversation tone, just like you're doing right now, and uh, you know, and just make people aware of here, and eventually, because the nice thing about a blog is. I mean, I know we want to engage with people, but if you know, if, if I, I participate on a number of forums and I've been doing it for a better part of it, and I know their their personality characteristics, and for somebody new to who hasn't done much online work, that can be intimidating. But a blog is a way, you know, it's more passive in that you write something and people read it and maybe comment on it, and uh, so that would be a good way. And then what will happen? blog is it will serve as an advertising media. People will know about it because this this server. And then you will grow an audience and you'll see where your most of your people will hang out. Somebody might suggest, hey, go over to the RP pub uh, and tell them what I sent you or something like that or, or another forum or, or Facebook group or whatever. But if you're looking to, to make a foothold in social media or do do Facebook posts the same way like a blog but uh you know you just tell a story about what you're doing you know that puts a human face on your effort people really all right i got i got three points here and i'll try to be brief as running out of time um the convention circuit great place to get things uh out there known and seen especially from people that may not have heard of you before but what i've seen and talked to a lot of uh you publishers a lot and the horror stories I hear from people starting out of the gate on that are 
I, I spent tons of money to go to Gen Con or PAX or one of the other big ones. And the, the theory why people do that is, oh, there's a lot of people there and they're, they're well known. I'm going to sell a lot of product and stuff. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but those kind of circuits have a changed demographics. It's more of an entertainment con than a RPG or a tabletop con these days. Um, so yeah. Uh, on, and also everybody else is trying to do the exact same thing, the exact same con and you just become white noise because you're quote unquote, a no name. So targeting a smaller con or smaller cons in general, I think you get a better demographic of people that are actually going to look at your stuff and or buy your stuff and become repeat customers that way. Uh, my second item is engagement. Um, yeah, you can have all the social media in the world, but if your customers are talking to you and you're not interacting with them, well, they're kind of going to dismiss you over time because, well, they want to interact with you. They got things to say. They're either good or bad, or they want to praise you or tell you we're doing a good job, but if they never hear anything back, they're kind of disappointed and sad kind of deal. Um, what's my third one? Uh, always be selling. <laughs> there we go. Um, it, just because you built up a, a mailing list over time and, and stuff like that uh, doesn't mean you should stop advertising to newer, newer markets and newer trends and things uh, like the advent of Twitch and now Discord. Um, those are new markets and those are markets to be tapped into. Um, I forget what the name of the, comp the coffee company was, but they were the number one coffee company in the world. And they just said, hey, we're not going to advertise anymore. And within a year, they had to close their doors because they stopped advertising and all the other coffee companies kept advertising and took over their market. Yeah, folders. There we go. I'm going to add, just remember, the customer is always right, when, even when they're being asshole. But what you say to the asshole is, I'm sorry, sir, that my product isn't you. I understand that. Thank you for your feedback. Just leave it at there. Don't try to argue with them. It would be really hard not to, especially with the uh, the ability to type out something on social media. But, but that's generally what I try to do. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there, there are no repercussions on the internet, and you got to remember, whatever you say on the internet stays on the internet. So if you look like an asshole 10 years ago, well, people are going to remember you're an asshole 10 years ago, maybe think you're still an asshole today. So you are the word and mouth of your company, so be careful what and how you say things. That being said, I think we're going to, unless somebody has any last tidbits here. All right, we're going to go into our product promotion time. Who would like to go first? Um, I Waterlands of High Fantasy should be out within two or three weeks. It has been submitted for. Uh, the uh, pre-press uh, cycle at OBS, they clear it, get my proof, all okay. You'll have the third installment. 
water five thirds at a be one more Hopefully that will be out. And where would be the best place to I didn't hear you. There we go. Um, where would be the best place to pick up your product that gave you the most percentage drop? Oh, RPG now. Or driver to RPG. Bat in the attic game. Cool. Uh, if you want to toss a link for us to your, your publishing uh, page on there, that'd be cool. Um, I'll go next. Uh, hey, I'm Pex from The Tavern. And if you'd like to support The Tavern and pot, or the podcast uh, like you're listening to right now, you can go to anchor.fm slash breakfast club slash support. Or you can click this link I'm about to drop and add uh, into Discord for. And you can uh, help feed me this month. Holds be holds a picture of a starving baby that looks like me. It's not really me. So there you go. I'm done. Uh, I guess I'll go next. I posted the link up in for the current Kickstarter, which is the World of the Lost Lands. Uh, the campaign setting that has been depending on who you talk to, either 20 or 40 years in the making, uh, compiling a host of products that came out from Necromancer games as well as Frog God games that has now been combined into one giant campaign setting. I think we have four days left. Um, we are funded at over, I think, 240% of funding. So, But if you feel free to, feel free to climb on board and uh, experience the world of the Lost Lands. I'm very excited about that. Oh, is it my turn? <laughs> uh, you or <are> Melkor. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'll go. Uh, yeah, so I'm Brian uh, with Lost Relic. Um, I'm the other half of Lost Relic. My wife, Liz, is also Lost Relic. And we create uh, Swords and Shaman of Songuard, uh, which is a desktop um, uh, fantasy RPG. Uh, it's uh, set in a world setting where we have uh, tribal elves. Um, it's against a Pleistocene-type background with lots of prehistoric creatures. So if you like hairy elephants and hairy rhinos and... and Sabertooth um, weasels and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've got it. Um, we've got uh, the humans in this in this uh, world of Songard are creating uh, new civilizations, and they're kind of on the Bronze and Iron Age setting. Uh, it's a low fantasy uh, sort of a setting. So we've got shaman, we've got hairy elephants, all that fun stuff. Uh, check us out on Drive Through RPG. It's in beta right now. And we're working very hard to release 2.0 of the player's book uh, this next month. It's almost finished. Uh, we have a lot of exciting updates in that. And uh, Toasty informs me that they're called mammoths. So uh, I, I, he calls them mammoths. I call them hairy elephants. So uh, I guess whoever's next. So next was supposed to be Melkor. However, he's um, busy, otherwise busy being having a terrible computer. So I'll fill in. Um, we're, we at Strange Gods, we have multiple podcasts that for you to listen to when bored or busy will suck the time out of your dark and depressed day so you won't even notice the time fly by. 
We won't be the light at the end of the tunnel, but we sure will be the spark that sets your life on fire. We have three we podcasts. Have- one is an actual play playthrough of Jade Regent. Another is an actual play playthrough of The Blight. And the other one is just essentially advertising for everyone else. So listen to us because we're funny. That's it. I'm impressed. That's your best pitch ever. Thank you. I keep working on them. You know, I'll get. I'll eventually, eventually, I'll I'll do a nice enough pitch that everyone <laughs> play play through. Yeah, it's true. I say that everyone will just immediately click on all the links. Very cool. Uh, well, we're going to unmute the audience now and take questions. Take me just a moment since there's a lot of you here today. Thank you all for coming. So if you got a questions, uh, feel free to ask us on your headset as soon as I unmute you here. Or if you don't have a mic, you can type them in the chat. We'll be sure to address it. All right, I think I got you all. So questions, questions, give us your questions. Uh, Here's my perfunctory question. Uh, Is it worth it to do Facebook ads and Google ads and that kind of stuff? Yes, but you need the numbers first. Agreed. uh, We've experienced increased sales with boosted or uh, sponsored ads. But again, as Peck said, you need to have the built-in audience first to do that. Uh, just to give you a rough outline for metrics, to even start thinking about doing that kind of thing, you're probably looking on Facebook, at least 1,000, uh, Twitter and Instagram, 500. Building your Twitter and Instagram are easy enough. The Facebook one, that's the one that's going to take some time to build those initial numbers. And then even then you want to spike those advertisements with like giveaways and stuff like that, that'll build it even faster. Good question. Don't be shy, you won't be mean. Well, Tom, Tom might. No, he won't. He's a nice guy. Okay, I'll ask another question. Uh, how important is good artwork uh, in terms of new company, new product, uh, you know, in terms of adoption and stuff like that? I mean, the term don't judge a book by its cover comes into play, but it's I'd not say baloney. It, very ma- it matters very much in the RP industry, even if it you have not as on par uh, art inside the book, your cover art would matter a lot more in the grand scheme of things. Well, here's, here's the thing. Stock art may not find fits what you're doing perfectly, but most people are aware, especially reviewers, people who take the time to do a lot of reviews, know Stark art, art is readily available. So if you if you don't even take the time to get one uh, 
piece of good stock art for your cover, that's going to be a that's going to be a strike. However, just about anything can be made to work if it comes across authentic. So I have to say that it's more important to be authentic than it is to have good art. Okay. However, don't have good art. It better work with you. How how authentic? For example, I I don't know. I don't. I forgot. There were some kids oriented OCR rule set about five years ago or something, and you know it's art. It, it just wasn't that good, but it was good for what it was trying to do because they look like kids drive, and it was and and the composition and their aptness to what whatever the section of the book was was uh, you know it's obvious that the author took time to figure out you know to make art that was appropriate for each section and the whole thing came across as authentic okay God I wish I could remember that name and uh, so that's what you know it it's a balance the I for me I use most of the stock I found I found one artist couple uh, two or three artists really like really fit what I'm doing. One of them is the Forge Studio. And they have a very nice black and white style. They have a lot of landscape which fits well with the the mostly setting products I make. Uh so I you know, whenever I have a few bucks I'll throw at them throw it at them and buy their latest pack. And uh on Scourge of the Demon Wolf I commissioned art Jason Schultz, which I was able to do a good response for Majestic Water. And uh, so, but I think a lot of the reasons why my art, despite its meager quality on Majestic Waterland work, that it, that it, it came across authentic what I was doing, and that I obviously did take the time to figure out, figure fine pieces, even though most of them were public domain, that fit what I was talking about in the book make the cover look uh that book right there for golden glory is nothing but public domain art however they were very smart in what they did because they're all themed very similar in art style they went with a very renaissance theme and it worked for that book and they were also able to make full color versions in black and white because of that issue if you're paying for art art is very expensive black and white is generally cheaper uh, but more people are attracted to color art at least on the cover um, but, well, more than the cover, but if you're going to do a book, at least have color art on the cover, I would say, in today's market. It really depends on your price point, too. I mean, if you're selling a $1.99 PDF on, you know, drive-thru RPG, um, I wouldn't recommend you going out and commissioning expensive color art. You're probably fine getting away with black and white because most people are buying it for the content. Once you get into the range where what we're putting out, like $50 books, $100 books, um, even something in the $35 to $40 range, color art is a given at this point um, because customers will say, well, I can go and buy uh, Midgard for 50 bucks, and it's color art and it's really good. Uh, and if you're just producing black and white, you're going to be out of luck. So color art, once you get in the higher price points, is an absolute must, and it has to be really good. Now, on the opposite scale, if you want to go whole hog, 
you want to have a product that is equal to anything that the uh, first tier publisher produces. Suggest you go to Douglas Cole at the Gaming Ballistic and read up on his various, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, publisher blog post where he lays out what he does. He's a one man out. And he does have a little bit of capital behind him, but you can see how much it costs him, therefore get a gauge on how much it costs you to do what he does. Because what he does is literally what the first tier publisher does, but, you know, he's a one-man outfit. He did, he did it all himself. You know, he hired artists, he hired editors, he managed the whole thing, did the layout, you know, and he lays it all out, so... For for me, he's the canonical example of how you do full color uh, layout at our level. Right, and he has said many a time, if you've been to the Breakfast Club or listen to Breakfast Club slash Coast to Coast, he, he overspends on art and he admits it, but he says it is worth it in the long run. And I, I kind of agree with him, honestly. If you're gonna if you're gonna have a budget for your book, a big percentage of it's gonna go toward your art, or should go to your art, at least in my opinion. So uh, my experience in looking at RPG art is it seems like there's kind of two different categories, I guess. One is the really slick looking, you know, fantasy, you know, with all the details and the dragons and, you know, you can see the trees in the forest and all that. And then there's the other side, which seems like more, you know, men and magic style of homespun art. And uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts on those two categories is in terms of, you know, product and getting things going and so on. Well, the, well the, generally the home, when it works, it's because the home spun up comes across uh, authentic. It's, it's, it's a nebulous quality. Everybody responds better when the product considered authentic. And it seems most authentic products do what that thing I do alluded, you know, talked about earlier, where come off of here's what I do, here's why I do it. I hope I hope you find this your campaign attitude. You know, that seems to to be a central core of authentic because you know the guy isn't he's trying to tell you something, but he, he definitely knows his place in the world of things and you know people like like that and the art the art goes along with it you know when it's hand drawn but when it when it when it comes across as a guy author trying to cost and throw anything in there goes just because it's art so that come doesn't come across authentic it's awful cheap and it doesn't the same with full color it can happen with full color too you know, it, instead of uh, feeling cheap, it feels overblown, overproduced, unreadable, you know, especially if you have a background in your text. You know, those are the sins of going the full color route. Right. And another thing, I don't think it's been mentioned or at least mentioned a lot. Um, you, you're in an industry and it's very small. There's a very small amount of people in that industry. And the barter system is very much alive. So I, I've heard a lot of uh, people trading writing for art and or art for uh, layout help or editing. So trading of services is also a thing, especially if you're starting out. Uh, it requires a little bit of networking, of course, because they're not going to let anybody just 
right for your company, that kind of deal. Because you, you got to be in it for a little while, but that is a thing. I've actually done it a few times where I wrote something for somebody else and they did cartography for me or they did art. Yeah, I paid Jason Schultz for, I only made a, made a partial payment for Jason Schultz's art to the team. The other part of the payment, me doing. So I have traded art for math. Let's go up here and see if I missed any questions in chat. I, no, I haven't just walking Melkor's PC. Carry on. Sorry, guys, I was talking over you. Go ahead. Oh, no, all I was saying was you haven't missed much in chat if you were looking for substance. Uh, we're creating new playable races, though. Like, never been seen before kind of deal, or? Uh, yeah, we're talking about the process by which things become half other things, and um, yeah. Yeah, breeding. I wanted to ask Mel. Well, I guess Puddles is here. Puddles. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. For you offer like a different service than an actual product. What do you find? Uh, how do you guys go about advertising or selling um, your, your uh, service? When you say service, it sounds pretty icky. But yes, we do not. We have a podcast. Um, we ran a couple paid ads on Facebook early on. I. Melkor knows all about the numbers. I'm not super familiar with them, but they didn't, I think they didn't bring about all that many like clicks and like on the Facebook page. We, um, I think most of our advertising has been like joining different um, OSR servers, especially for the Blight and uh, talking about it on there because those are the people with the interest. And um, we have we definitely have a Facebook page. We don't have much interaction on there, which we probably need to change. And our Twitter. Uh, we try and uh, interact with our listeners or readers on Twitter. Uh, let me think what else. Yeah, mostly just joining different servers and, like, you know, talking about ourselves, bragging. Just forcing people to join our own server. <laughs> Eventually it starts to pay off, you know. Blackmail. Yeah, so that, that, that sounds like the way to go about it for what you guys are doing. I just have no idea on that side of the industry. Yep. Any more questions, gang? How many does a mini have to be to be considered mini? Like, I know nothing about those, but like, what's the maximum size for a mini for it to still be considered a mini? Not a uh, major. 28 millimeters. Oh, really? Yes. 28, that's I don't know, 25 millimeters. Don't go oversized. 
Man, ah, and then see, Jake the Human says 54. See, this is an interesting question. Because anything else is a statue. We can go up to 54. You get like all the old Inquisitor minis and stuff like that. So then what's the difference between statue and statuette? A statuette is smaller than a statue. Like a yes, statue like, is like a thing that's like... Looks like, like a Roman column holding up a building, but it's a giant dude. It's like a six foot tall stone space marine or something. Statue so it's not a like mini anymore. The little like foot tall bust that's like one to one that you just throw on your shelf, or it's like, you know, three feet or less. Like it's still it's not really a mini, but it's it's, it's basically a big action figure that you can't play with. So is that so the is point that- at which you're not cool if you play with it? I think is, if you have a statue, cool. Or is it or still is, cool? Well, I am a bit disgruntled. <laughs> you don't I'm judge. A, I'm a bit disgruntled because I still have miniatures. First Grenadier box that I opened up in 1981. Oh. You know, I never lost. I lost a few pieces, but I never lost a lot of them. I and, lost all mine. And uh, I feel it's it's knowing what I used to have and what I have now. I know where. And but when I take one of those and stack them up with the pre-printed D and D miniatures that I I bought recently, you know, it's like this twenty meter, eighty millimeter stock. Why couldn't they have stuck with twenty-five? What's wrong with twenty-five? There were a lot of details after they got the after they got better. First, they were kind of. There were some pretty bad there, but over over time, especially starting with the box sets, they really started. Jake, that's a really good question. If you don't mind uh, repeating it in voice here. Oh yeah, okay. So my uh, question was. Oops, sorry, I forgot. I'll push talk. There's room in the RPG space for other truly major players because Paizo is kind of on the downswing because they waited too long for second edition and aren't downscaling and FFG relies really heavily on their licensed properties. Like other than like they put out Genesis, but that's just a licensed property with the numbers filed off. So like D and D has really been the only game in town for as long as I can remember. And it doesn't seem like anyone's doing a great job at competing other than fantasy flight. You're absolutely right. And I do think there's room at the top for more players or more top players than just Watsi or Paizo. And there's lots of third-party uh, slash first-party, if you boost your own in-house system, um, room up there. It's just a matter of, I hate to say it, they were there first. They kind of dominated the advertising. It's a household name. And you say D&D, and people just immediately think role-playing game. That's, that's just how it is. Um, and they're afraid to try anything else because they don't know what it is. And it's how many steps you're removed from that, that known like I can, I can say D and D, and then a step from that would be Cthulhu, or then I could say a step from that would be a clone of Cthulhu. People, it's an education process, and then market is changing because of all the social media and different things uh, being stuck up on the internet. It's a slow process, and I'm surprised more companies haven't shot up toward the quote unquote upper echelon of uh, the industry. But I think some companies are on their way to that place how quickly that'll arise yeah we'll see yeah to be fair it hasn't been that long since we convinced the general populace that we don't worship satan 
Exactly. Yeah, I, 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 I think of, there's uh oh, go ahead. Okay, thanks. I just wanted to say, I wonder if in aggregate, given how many small publishers there are, if you took the total number of sales of all of them, how that would compare to like uh, Wizards of the Coast or Piazzo. We would be combined, we would, my guess, based on informal numbers given to me over the years, my educated guess that we would be a solid second tier company. Yep. Um, it, 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 we may be now two solid tier second comedy because some people like Frog Gods and James Raggy's Lamentation Flame Princess probably are ordering or already at the point where they're tier themselves. I don't know, but it it eventually, you know, one of you know a bunch of OS, one of those two is going to become second tier, and uh, there may be more. And uh, but in aggregate, it's definitely a tier company with a far, far with a back catalog with an order of magnitude larger than including <laughs> including Wizards itself. Yeah, the back catalog is huge, and the back catalog generates sales. Um, it's like a cash cow almost because what happens is you've paid all of your production costs. Um, for us, we don't have any issues with fulfillment, which is a very expensive part of the industry that most people don't talk about. Um, where you store your products, who ships them out, um, that's all done in-house. But in terms of the actual sales, um, you know, the one market that's been really hard to crack for the, I don't want to say the second tier or the third tier publishers is Amazon. And most people buy their, I'm going to say go on a limb and say most people buy their Watsi products or even their Paizo products off of Amazon. And I mean, we yeah. don't have anywhere near the exposure. At least that's my opinion. I have bought a few lots of books off of, uh, out of uh, my favorite little game store, but for the most part, when especially if you come to materials that I only have a marginal interest in, but may be useful, uh, I, I will buy it off of Amazon because I just can't, I'm not going to pay for the price. For something like the uh, dungeon heist thing, I wanted to read how they handled a city adventure, <laughs> but it's highly unlikely I ever used so firmly welded quantity. But on the other hand, I bought Dungeon of Mad Mage off of the uh, off of my game store because uh, well I could afford it, but you know I knew I was going so I felt I was going to value for money spent. But the other thing that people need to keep in mind, uh, it would be nice to be on that top five ICV2 list. It doesn't matter anymore. The reason I say that is because the barriers to entry are so low that it is possible, I think it's possible, to, if you're willing to put the work in and you've done, it, you've done your homework and, you, and you're friendly and, and you put out good quality projects or products, you have an audience now. The cost, the cost structure is so different that small, you know, a handful of people as a company can make a go at it and people living there. Even one person can do it. Right, and the market's changed to such a degree. I mean, gotta admit, Watsi wasn't brick and mortar stores. The physical places that people used to go into—that's another factor into things. 
Um, you try to get your book into a game store these days, it's good luck. <laughs> Hope you know a guy. Um, but the, I, I think people are misfocusing the brick and mortar. It, you, yeah, a game store, that's going to hit your target market. But like your Amazon, which is your broader market, if you slide a thing into like Borders or Walmart or something of note like that, I think that would be a game changer for somebody to rise to up to the top. Um, but that's a hard, hard thing to crack. And I don't think anybody's done it that well yet. And remember that Mark, but that channel of distribution had his own custom procedure. Mm -hmm. so, for example, I don't know how true returns are anymore. Returns was all, but ultimately uh, was the thing that tipped TSO, TSR over into bank. Was one of the reasons TSR uh, tipped over into bankruptcy because all their unsold merchandise were being returned and they had to refund the money that they paid out for. And I'm, I'm sure distribution channels these days have their similar quirks still going on. Uh, you know, I don't know what it takes to get on a on a Barnes and Noble shelf or or books a million, but you know, it just. I mean, I guess, I guess it could go back what I said earlier. I mean, I do what I do in the time I have for a hobby, <clears throat> and it even doesn't take up all that all the time I have for a hobby either, because it's just the technology just makes me so efficient doing them. Literally, it's just a matter of time. It, it all boils it down. How much time do I have to write? Whether how fast do I get a product? The only limitation that I have, and that's a marvelous thing, and, and good news to anybody who wants to get their ideas out there. Excellent question, Jake. That was very fun to answer. Or attempt to answer it. All right. Woo. What's the question? Uh, if anybody could like topple Watt, be at the, if there's room at the top for uh, anybody else besides Watsy and Pi. Oh. I don't think it's uh, a question of there being room at the top, right? I mean, in any competition where there's a fight for resources, it's not like, oh, there's enough resources for everyone. Like, of course there is, but the person at the top is hogging all those resources, so you have to either steal away their customers or you have to fight for your place at the top. It's not so much, hey, there's there's enough space here for two, let's welcome everyone in. Um, if you, yeah, if as someone said earlier, if you put the work in, if you work hard enough, steal all their customers. Yeah, Not eventually you'll you'll be a big name in the industry. But there's there's a brand thing going on there too, I think. And I, I think that's part of what we see with um you know, like with wizards, right? Um, is it it's like uh like here in Texas, if you say, you know, Coke, you know, you're basically talking about, you know, a, a soda or whatever, but it's always I want a Coke. Um really? because of that yes, because yes. of that brand. Ew. And even though like Dr. Pepper is like native down here, right? They, they made it here. Um, so it's, um, there's a certain degree of that with um, D&D, right? They've, they've established uh, this sort of mind share uh, that's come out through popular culture 
that's come out over decades through movies. And now that um, this sort of uh, concept with, with things on uh, the internet and television shows like, you know, the big bang theory and stuff, this concept that geekiness is popular. Um, now, when people say, they don't say, you know, Hey, we played an RPG. A lot of times you hear we played D and D and so it becomes synonymous. And so they've got kind of that lock there. Um, now the good news is, is back when D and D was, was going through its initial kick. Um, and it really got rolling. I I'd say probably, I mean, if I'm wrong, this was just my perception. So it may have been my age, you know, but in the, in the early eighties, when things really got rolling, um, we saw this sort of like Renaissance where there were lots of alternate RPGs just showing up on the scene, uh, totally different systems. Um, and I think we're starting to see that now. So I think we can benefit from that. But of course, like I said, they have the lock on the brand. Right. And as Tom pointed out here, they're, they're the Kleenex. I mean, there's other tissue companies, but everybody still calls them Kleenex. Yeah. And here's the thing. It's no like, thanks to the internet, it's not a zero game. I mean, let's look at, let's look at it back in the, uh, say, first of 1990. How did you get your product? Well, you have mail, but most people have stores. Stores have shelves, even game shelves. So it wasn't a zero-sum game. It was a zero-sum game. It did matter who had the highest market share because those who commanded the largest amount of market share have more shelf space to stock a more variety of products. And even though it was rare for you know, TSR, then TSR to tell store owner how much space they need to allocate in their own self-interest, each, each game store owner store owner would stock, will dedicate more self space to those who know more and sort of sort of perpetuate. But here comes the uh, internet. Hasn't changed the equation for joint games because it's a, the, re, the physical reality. Uh, however, as far as the old mail order uh, paradigm, order over direct company, now that suddenly became that idea has become viable, not in terms of getting stuff from U.S. mail. Well, I guess that's part of it, print on demand. But the fact that now you can, the internet makes it so easy to go to a company's website and order something and to receive product in return, whether it's through mail or digital. And it just it's no longer a joke. Okay, so we need a healthy D and D or a healthy path to draw in players in person. But be but as far as what we do, as long as they're healthy, we're going to be healthy because there's room for everything. I mean, how many of us have walked into a strictly just RPG store? Do they exist? Question mark. There's only so much shelf room. I mean, you have your comics, your magic cards, your other tabletop board games, um, your RPG books, all in one store because they need that to survive. Um, that's just the nature of the beast at the moment for the hobbyist shops like that. You have to remember something too that um, while while fourth edition did totally tank D and D, Paizo didn't come out of nowhere. Um, I mean, they had the license for Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine, which was obviously associated then with um, Watsi, and, and they grew out of that. So 
But when people ask me what I do and they say, you do writing, and if I say RPGs, they think I'm talking about French maids and uh, something else. So when I, oh, say right. D &D, when I say D D, they know what I'm talking about. And they go, oh, okay, Dungeons and Dragons. I, I know what that is. But if I said, I write fantasy role playing games, they're going to think, you know, something totally different. So it's just that brand name. It is just, it's. It's, it, 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 helps, it helps now that we have things like the Big Bang Theory and, and uh, Hollywood personalities involved in doing uh, gaming and, and role-playing as well. I mean, they do board games as well, but, you know, like Felicia Day and I forgive, I can't pronounce this guy's last name, Joe Mentagio. I don't know. He, He's a he's a he's a not an A list actor, but he's pretty up there. And uh, you know they they gladly proclaim their love of D and D and do some things from time to time that involve D and D. And uh, you know, as far as that goes, we're almost living in a golden age when it comes to people being aware of D and D again. And don't forget, a lot of our players now are grew up as the children of players. Um, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, my parents didn't play D&D. &D. My parents had no idea what it was. Um, but now, the parents do know what it is. So if the kids get involved or the parents get the kids involved, there's, there's that stigma that we talked about earlier is pretty much gone at this point. I mean, there's some you know crackpots who will bring it up every now and then, but by and large... It's disappeared from the mainstream. Oh, yeah. And like we're talking about in chat, I mean, the RPG industry is interesting because when, like Tom was saying, when you say role-playing game, people think one thing. Um, and the second thought is video games. I'm like, no, no, that's not what an RPG is. Um, <laughs> and you have to go down the ladder, and, and you can't even say tabletop because people associate that with strictly board games. It's, it's it's interesting, but exactly, D&D is, everybody gets it. All right, last call for questions. And if I missed you, retype it real quick or copy-paste. Waiting for Jake and Three Orcs to finish here. Uh, three Orcs dies is the answer. Yeah, that's a fair point, Jake. They are the bastard child of war games. Well, every RPG it has a war game at its core. Sometimes it's not a very good war game, but it's good for good for being part of an RPG. Uh, what what time zone BB is that again? Six thirty Eastern. Yes. Uh, quick plug for our new show premiering tonight. VB's radio show. It's a Sublime RPG BS show. So that'll be happening at 6.30 Eastern if you want to attend that. 
Uh, Vivi, you want to give your own quick little plug, and then we'll close out here. Uh, sure, yeah. yeah. It's just the three of us, me and my buddies, we're doing a kind of talk radio show on RPGs, mostly from a games mastering and playing perspective, and how to you know do games mastering and world creating, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have fun and enjoy ourselves and uh, we'll take, you know, calls from the listeners and stuff and uh, plug random products and do cool stuff. So anyway, looking forward to it. And uh, we're starting at 630 tonight. Thanks. And that's going to wrap us up for another RPG Breakfast Club.